Women's Fight Back, issue number 28, spring 2023, page 1. Strike to Save the NHS by Alice Hazel. The past few months have seen the biggest strikes by nurses in the history of the NHS. The RCN began its action in December, though has, at the time of writing, suspended action around negotiations. Unison, GMB and Unite have called out paramedics. Meanwhile, the BMA's thumping victory in its national ballot has brought junior doctors into the dispute. As in the broader strike wave, pay is the core issue of the dispute. With inflation soaring and after more than a decade of pay cuts, nurses were awarded a miserable £1,400 for 2022-23. This situation, combined with the wider crisis in the NHS, was a huge factor in the strong vote for strike action. Systematic underfunding, fragmentation and privatisation has left services broken and health workers witness harm to patients on a daily basis. Many feel that they had no choice but to strike for the survival of the NHS. Picket lines have had overwhelming support from the public and have been lively and inspiring places to be. In every workplace, women have been at the front. 77% of the NHS's 1.3 million workers are women and 89% of nurses and midwives. The NHS strikes are therefore a socialist feminist issue. Women taking action to fight for their pay, terms and conditions are women building strength, gaining confidence in collective action and developing solidarity. Even NHS Confederation Chief Executive Matthew Taylor has said that the dispute is, quotes, radicalising a generation of NHS workers, end quotes. These are the women who can reshape and lead the workers' movement. It is vital for the success of the strikes that striking workers are able to take ownership of the dispute. Collective action is empowering and we've seen small moments of self-organisation and resistance to management in workplaces and on picket lines across the UK. On a picket line in Birmingham, a group of healthcare assistants, HCAs, stood up to their chief nurse when she came down to the picket line and demanded they go on to shift because their ward was understaffed. Quotes, Why should we, they asked, when we are down on our numbers every day this week, when we beg for extra staff, we don't get any. So, no, end quotes. In London, when they were asked to send some striking staff back in to provide emergency cover, nursing staff on the picket line gathered together and discussed it collectively. With the encouragement of Band 7 and Band 8 nurses who were amongst the striking workers, they decided against it. With Unison failing to meet the thresholds in ballots at the overwhelming majority of NHS trusts, except in the ambulance services, the dispute has largely been left to the Royal College of Nursing, RCN, a union that was until recently a de facto no-strike union. The union's hierarchy has tried to keep control of its strike committees and picket lines in the hands of directly employed union staffers, who are often very conservative. Calling for corporate and RCN-branded picket lines, the union has instructed picket supervisors to insist on union and community banners, or even homemade placards be taken down.
political slogans, anything mentioning the Tories, are not supposed to appear. The success of this control freakery has been mixed. When the Save Liverpool Women's Hospital campaign turned up to the picket line at the hospital they had been defending, they were treated so coldly they felt they had to leave. On the other hand, many workers have simply ignored the diktat, proudly displaying homemade placards and activists from campaigns and the other unions. In the other side of Liverpool, a senior nurse handed round cupcakes with the slogan Fuck the Tories, iced onto the top. They were the ideal picket line treat, both de delicious and subversive. Democracy Escalation Unity if members are excluded from meaningful democratic engagement in their disputes, the entire industrial strategy will end up being mismanaged. When conservative union leaders get to call the shots on their own, they make bad decisions. The RCN called off strikes in Wales in January just so that it could consult on a meagre 3% offer, only 1.5% of which is consolidated. As we write, it has suspended strike action across England so that it can enter negotiations and may well end up consulting on another disastrous deal. In Scotland, a much more substantial offer of around 15% over two years has been put to members. In the immediate term, the fight will be to reject any bad offer put forward following negotiations. As the dispute evolves, it will be shifting power in this dispute, and that will depend on NHS workers talking to each other on picket lines and in workplaces about the best strategies to win. We need strike committees, led not by the union bureaucracy, but by workers themselves. Union activists and members need to organise together everything from recruitment and mobilisation to fundraising and solidarity. It will also mean raising issues within the existing democratic structures of our unions. Getting contacts and representatives in every workplace area and team will deepen the organisation of the strike. Linking up these activities locally, regionally and nationally can put pressure on union leaderships, holding them to account and ultimately create the rank-and-file organisation necessary for genuine democracy and trade unions. Escalating action is the way to win, Generally, long drawn-out strikes with single days of action here and there can be managed by bosses. They switch clinics around and get staff to work harder to clear the backlog. Escalation can mean a number of things. Longer strikes, increasing the number of trusts, coordinating with other unions and withdrawing from derogations. This dispute has also demonstrated that in the long run, one union for all health workers would be the strongest way to organise, page 3. One industry, one union has long been the call of socialists in the unions. Immediately and at a local level, the work of buildings for strikes need to be coordinated. RCN and union unison branches should be helping each other to win ballots and should run joint strike committees. A political strike. The NHS is dying on its feet for lack of staff and pay is the crucial factor in recruitment and retention. There are 132,000 unfilled clinical vacancies. 73% of nursing staff surveyed by the RCN said staffing levels on their last shift weren't sufficient to meet the needs 
of patients safely and effectively. Between September 2009 and August 2017, there was a 13% reduction in the number of mental health nurses. One in six paramedic positions are vacant. Midwives are leaving the profession at such a rate that for every 30 new midwives trained, the NHS will only see a net increase of one. The cuts to bursaries for health students led to an 18% drop in applicants for nursing places between 2016 and 2017 and a further drop of 13% to 2018. Applications for nursing and midwifery are nosediving again this year, according to University Admissions Organisation UCAS. With NHS pay decided by the government, the dispute is straightforwardly political. NHS leaders argued for an extra £7 billion this year and next to get the post-Covid recovery underway, but was awarded less than half of this. The waiting list has almost tripled from 2.5 million in 2010 to 4.5 million in 2019 and 7.1 million in 2022. Acute bed numbers have plunged by 9,000 to below 100,000. Many of them are filled with people unable to move out of hospital due to failing social care system. Ambulance response times and waits outside A&D departments are at unprecedented highs. The Tories have brought the NHS to its need in an attempt to break public reliance and support. The strikes need to be linked in and built with political action to rebuild the NHS, including trade union-led demonstrations and demands on the government and labour. We need at least £20 billion of emergency funding, a fully funded restorative pay rise for all NHS staff, but just as much as the cash we need to address the structures, we need a full publicly owned NHS and the guarantee of free health care for future generations. A strike for equality. Attacks on the universal health care are a direct attack on women, not just as workers, but as the majority users of health care in the NHS. When the NHS was introduced, women and children were its greatest benefit beneficiaries. Maternal mortality fell sharply after 1948. Today women are more likely to use GP services than men, in part due to reproductive related consultations. The largest single cause of admission to NHS hospitals is to give birth and in England in 2018-19 women made up 54.6% of admissions. 36% of women and 30% of men aged over 50 reported a limiting long-standing illness in 2014-15 and two-thirds of people with dementia are women. The NHS has been rightly criticised for not serving women well, especially marginalised women. It is estimated that there are two preventable gender gap-related deaths per day in the UK. Nearly half of England's maternity units closed to new mothers at some point in 2017, with capacity and staffing issues being the most common reasons cited. A recent Care Quality Commission report outlined that 39% of maternity units required improvement or are inadequate, 
and details how record numbers of people are dissatisfied with their birth experience. Many failures are additionally rooted in discrimination, which is less likely to be overcome in the context of cuts. In 2017-19, to 19, black women were more than four times more likely to die in pregnancy or childbirth than white women in the UK. Healthcare for trans women is completely inadequate, both in terms of provision of gender identity services and general health care, with 38% of trans respondents reporting a negative experience of healthcare services because of their gender identity. Migrant women are further penalised by their Tories' economic and political attacks. One in 20 women were denied free NHS maternity care across the three northeast London boroughs last year because they were deemed as overseas visitors. M moving on to page 4. NHS uh, now know about this discrimination because they face it themselves every day. In a diverse and overwhelmingly women-dominated workforce, there are large <coughs> race and gender pay gaps. In April 2018, the NHS reported a median gender gap in hourly pay of 17.4%, while other sources cited it closer to 23%. Black men and women were paid 85p and 94p for every £1 paid to white men and women, respectively. Because women and people of colour are disproportionately employed in low, lower bands jobs, and a similar way of addressing these pay gaps would be flat rate pay increases which benefit lower paid workers the most. The Golden Opportunity The NHS strikes are a golden opportunity to build a generation of class-conscious feminist trade union activists. This is an important task in practice, not just in theory. Unless this dispute is led by working-class women on the front line, their needs will again be overlooked. At stake is something much broader than the immediate boundaries of the dispute. Women take on about 80% of the unpaid carer roles in society, and when public provision fails, we tend to pick up the slack. This dispute is about pay, but it is also about the future of the NHS, gender and race pay gaps, discrimination in healthcare provision, and social reproduction in a much broader sense. Feminists have long aimed to improve access to health services for women, including gaining control over our reproductive rights and challenging paternalistic models of medicine. All access and rights in relation to health care are now contingent on a fight to rebuild the NHS and in the first place solidarity with the NHS strike strikes. We need to fight for an NHS that can work for all women and as workers, patients and caregivers. As part of that, we need to develop a deeper understanding of the way that women's health care needs are dictated by both women's roles in gendered society and by the complex ways that interact with biology, including the knowledge that societal health inequalities are intrinsically linked with economic inequality. Voices from the Picket Lines Ruth Arsien, Branch Secretary, South Birmingham. This is the first time in 104 years that RCN nurses have, be, have gone on strike. We are still struggling to recover from the pandemic. We were heroes and the people, the public clapped for us, but clapping will not pay our bills. 
We provide compassionate care in impossible conditions, even when the shift is down by five nurses. Nursing at the moment is hard. Many of our colleagues are struggling with their mental health. We use our voice for nurses now and for nurses of the future. Our voices are loud. The government will not play with our heartstrings and guilt trip us into stopping action. We will continue to fight for safe staffing and fair pay. <coughs> Helen, mental, care, mental health nurse, Merseyside. I think the action is our last resort to try to protect ourselves, our colleagues, our patients and the NHS as a whole from systematic government failures, disregard and underfunding, funding cuts. It's not action taken lightly, and it certainly isn't all about pay. It's about us standing together and fighting to protect something that society in general will be worse off without. Hunger, poverty, illness are many people's reality, and as this government seems hell-bent on destroying and dismantling the NHS, they will be on the increase for more people unless we take a stand. Elaine, Unison member, Merseyside. At my workplace, the postal workers said they would be turning around and not crossing the picket line. Supports also came from bus drivers and council bin workers who have recently won their disputes. Management issuing an email saying non-union members could join the RCN strike but not Unison members. Unison also instructed members to go to work. I didn't cross. I took the Unison banner to put alongside those of the RCN. In this dispute, we have an opportunity to rebuild health unions. Solidarity and asserting the basic principle of not crossing a picket line will be an important part of it. Page 5. International Women's Day. Five Days in 1979 by Jill Mountford. Quotes. There was no question in our minds that this was the first step to suppress us and we should stand up to it as both women and as revolutionaries, end quotes, by Said Hedi Teragahe, a lecturer at Tehran University in 1979. During the Ura Iranian Revolution of 1978-79, women stood shoulder to shoulder with men and toe to toe against the Shah's regime in mass demonstrations and on the barricades. The revolution stood for democracy, liberty and equality against a dictatorship that had been installed in a military coup in 1953. It was a moment of hope for progressives, the organised left, the women, the workers' movement, feminists, liberals and national minorities. But only a few months after the Shah had fled on the 16th of January 1979 and a provisional government was established, Ayatollah Khomeini the figureheads for a movement led by clerics and inspired by reactionary Islamism, was arresting striking oil workers and issuing decrees against minorities and women. Khomeini had returned to Iran on 1st of February 1979 and on 5th of February had been had appointed Mehdi Bezagan as his provisional um, prime minister. On the 7th of March 1979, Khomeini announced the compulsory wearing of the veil for all women in workplaces and public buildings. He said there was to be an end to women entering the workplace naked. As Iranian journalist Halei Asfandiari said, quotes, 
in the excitement of that revolution, nobody paid much attention to what Ayatollah Khomeini was saying in Paris. He said women will have a role in the society, but within an Islamic framework. Nobody bothered in those days to ask, what is the Islamic framework? That was a serious weakness on the part of the workers' um, movements, the uh, the workers, the women's movements and progressives. End quotes. On 8th of March, in freezing temperatures and heavy snow, tens of thousands of women gathered in Tehran for the first ever celebration of International Women's Day in Iran. It became the start of five consecutive days of protest against the veil and the oppression of women. Tens of thousands of women gathered outside the Prime Minister's office in Tehran and 3,000 went to the religious city of Qom, where Khomeini resided. Around 15,000 women assembled on the campus of Tehran University. A mass assembly was held in the university's auditorium. It discussed the verbal and physical attacks many women were facing on the streets from Islamist thugs. Pro-regime guards locked the gates of the university in an effort to prevent the women joining a demonstration outside. Hadi Teragahi, a lecturer at the university at the time, remembers climbing the gates with other women to join the demonstration outside and shouting, is, the, is this the freedom for which we all demonstrated and suffered? Chants and the protests included, We didn't have a revolution to go backwards. Women's Day of Emancipation is neither Western or Eastern, it is international. And freedom is our culture, to stay at home is our shame. Khomeini's supporters assaulted the women with knives, stones, bricks and, br and broken glass. Their slogans were, Wear the veil or we will punch your head, and Death to the unveiled. Women, the working class, national minorities and religious minorities had much to gain from a revolution against the Shah and his regime, but they also had much to lose to Khomeini's theocracy. For five days, it's the 12th of March, Women took to the streets to take back their revolution, and for five days they were met with violent attacks from Khomeini supporters. They were called traitors, prostitutes, pro-imperialist stooges and counter-revolutionaries. One demonstration on the 10th of March saw 15,000 protesters take over the Palace of Justice for a three-hour sit-in. During that time, the women formulated eight demands, including demands for equality and freedom, the right to work, the right to express themselves and to be politically active and represented. The next day, 20,000 women attended a rally at Tehran University. They, made, they marched to Azadi Square and were joined by women workers from hospitals, offices and schools, but soon came under attack. As the attacks became more and more vicious, more women were getting seriously injured. The regime retreats, the protests return, then stop. With protests growing and deepening, Khomeini retracted his initial decree on the veil, claiming that he merely meant to enforce the wearing of modest dress rather than the full veil. The government issued a cut statement saying the hijab would only be encouraged but not compulsory. These concessions demobilized some of the protests. Many left-wingers and progressives assumed, naively, that Khomeini's retreat would be lasting. 
According to Farah Azari, author of Women of, of Iran, The Conflict with Fundamentalist Islam, published in 1983, the record of the left in general in these mobilizations was poor. Quotes, During the women's demonstrations of March 1979, when the issue of the hijab was first raised, the Fadayan, Majahadin and most of the small Marxist groups did not support these demonstrations. The Mujahadin and Today Party even criticized them for playing into the hands of imperialists and endangering the revolution. End quotes. For much of the left, women's liberation was something to be granted only once socialism was achieved. Within weeks of Khomeini's retraction, women were banned from co-education and all classes became segregated. By July 1979, women were being flogged in public for swimming in the wrong section of the newly segregated sea. Three women were executed, accused of being prostitutes. Soon, divorce laws, part of a liberal family protection law introduced in 1967, were repealed. Old laws giving men and their families rights over children in a divorce were reinstated. Women now needed permission from their husbands to get a job. In response to these attacks, the new Women's Solidarity Coalition called a Unity of Women conference on the 25th of November. The mood was buoyant and angry. On 8th of March 1980, one year on from the International Women's Day mobilizations, a large rally was organized at Tehran University where messages of solidarity from abroad were read out. But the burgeoning women's movement could not hold back the tide of reaction. In May 1980, women were attacked, including being stabbed, for not wearing the veil in public. In June, Khomeini <coughs> issued a decree to stipulate all women in government offices must wear the veil. Women responded to this decree by mobilising several thousands to demonstrate at the offices of the president. They were greeted, according to Azari, by, um, quotes, clubbing, club-wielding and vicious gangs of Hezbollahi who were happy to add sexual assaults, whether verbal or physical, to their customary attacks and abuses on the opposition, end quotes. The June decree was followed by another in July, which stated that all women must wear the veil during the month of Ramadan. In the 1970s, Iran had a highly organized working class. Many women were well-educated and in 1979 had fought for a revolution which they saw as a harbinger of equality, democracy and freedom. In its aftermath, women continued to organize, but after 1980, the, this organization was increasingly forced underground. Eventually, the streets mobilization stopped. Nevertheless, women have proved to be the most consistent and dynamic opposition to the Islamist regime. Women lead the struggle. The most inspiring events and images of 2022 were the women and girls of Iran taking to the streets and collectively removing their hijabs in the wake of Mashad Jina Armani's murder by the Mor Morales police in, uh, in September. Moving on to page 7. In the state of State brutality, imprisonments, beatings and death. They have responded with defiance, bravery and courage. Schoolgirls grew in confidence as women took to the streets. Images of 
schoolgirls giving the middle finger to pictures of Ayatollah Khomeini in their classrooms and dislodging the turbans of reactionary old clerics frothed with life, courage and humour. The women and girls in 2022 Iran stand on the shoulders of the women who protested for five days and organised for for weeks and months afterwards against the Islamic Republic in 1979-80. As socialists, we should draw inspiration and strength from them. There can be no socialism without women's liberation and no women's liberation without socialism. International Women's Day The Feminist Five by Kelly Rogers In the days before International Women's Day 2015, Chinese authorities arrested five women, Wei Tingting, Cheng Chiran, Lei Maezi, Wu Rengrong and Wang Mang, for planning to hand out stickers challenging sexual harassment on public transport across China. They were detained for 37 days. Over the course of their detainment, the five were subjected to violent interrogations, denied important medication and medical treatment, and were routinely harassed and humiliated. The women had been involved in feminist and LGBTQ rights activism for some years. While at university, Zheng Chiran, known by the nickname Datu Giant, Giant Rabbit, and a group of lesbian friends had split from the main LGBTQ student group to form a queer feminist group called Sinna B, B for Bitch. Its members collaborated on acts of feminist performance arts. In 2012, the group joined up with Wu Rongrang's Gender Equality Work Group and other activists including Li Maizi and Wang Man to call for more public toilets for women. Lee and 20 other women occupied a men's public toilet in the southern city of Gongzhou, holding placards with the slogans Love Women Starts Starting with Convenience and The More Convenience, The More Sexual Equality. That same year, Zheng Chiran, Lei, Li Maizi, Wei Tingting and others worked on the Bloody Brides Valentine's Day action, protesting the absence of a nationwide law against domestic violence. They held signs that read, Love is no excuse for violence. Fast forward to 2015, and the women were planning their action against sexual harassment on public transport. Like their previous actions, the subject was chosen partly because it wasn't directly challenging the Chinese Communist Party, and they thought, incorrectly it turned out, that it would be less politically sensitive and less likely to result in reprisal. The plan was simple. Have women (coughs) handing out stickers, take photos and send a press release to local news. Volunteers signed up across the country. On 7th of March, before the action could take place, five were arrested. Censorship Ironically, (coughs) if the women had not been jailed, their action may well have passed with little notice. As it happened, the detention of the Feminist Five precipitated a political turning point. Their treatment inspired solidarity actions both within China and across the world, pressure which led to their release but also marks the beginning of a new era of tighter surveillance of feminist activism. The term (coughs) feminist suddenly became politically sensitive and subject to censorship. 
The state took down posts and spiked news reports, reports that mentioned the Feminist Five. They stopped short of removing all content about feminism on social media, however, and this gave the emerging movement a small amount of space to organise. Solidarity messages rolled in from academic students and activists. Factory workers posted images of themselves holding signs declaring their solidarity with the five. Page 8. Perhaps the most I- iconic picture that's found its way in onto social media was that of a man's bare upper torso with the slogan, Giant rabbits always proud of you, the proletariat supports you. Aimed at <coughs> Zheng Churan, who had spent time organising with sanitation workers in Zhengzhou. One year on from the arrests, the number of people calling themselves feminists on social media had ballooned. Weibo responded by banning their accounts. By May 2017, the state campaign against feminism was in full swing. The official organ of the Chinese Communist Party, the People's Daily, wrote that Western feminism was being used by foreign powers to interfere in China. Song Chi-yong, an official of the All-China Women's Federation, argued that all women in China must be vigilant in not allowing the country to be infiltrated by Western ideology, as Xi Jinping had always said. Sexual violence. State censors also took aim at the Me Too movement, which reached China in earnest in January 2018. Thousands of students across the country signed petitions calling for an end to sexual harassment and assaults on campus. Ironically, <coughs> or perhaps deliberately, Weibo waited until International Women's Day, March the 8th, before banning feminist voices, the most important feminist account on the site. A day later, their account was also deleted by WeChat. Across the two sites, this ban robbed the moment of access to around a quarter of a million followers. Chinese feminists have good reason to fight on the issue of sexual violence. The government freely admits that about one in four married women is subject to assault by their partners, though that figure is likely to be far higher in reality. The state does not collect data on harassment and gendered violence, and the law does not contain a clear definition of harassment, but a survey by the Sunflower Women's Workers' Centre in 2013 estimated that about 70% of women factory workers in Zhengzhou had been (coughs) harassed. Despite the introduction of the first law against domestic violence in 2015-16, domestic violence shelters are still empty. The new law does not even mention sexual violence and marital rape is still illegal. Repression has not stopped the movement against sexual harassment from reaching a much wider layer of society and gaining an audience among the Chinese working class. Patriarchal authoritarianism. The Chinese media called Xi Jinping Xi Dada and Dedi Xi until 2016. The leader's manliness is a core part of his public image, as is his holding of traditional family values. Women are supposed to be obedient and to engage in acts of caring, childbearing and social reproduction, and this is seen as a core part of the nation's political stability. The state sees no problem in denying women their 
their bodily autonomy as the one-child policy shows showed with forced abortion, sterilization and the forced insertion of contraceptive implants. The one-child policy became a two-child policy in 2015 and a three-child policy in 2021. Now women are being pushed to have children, having spent 35 years being forcibly prevented from doing so. But the state only wants some women to reproduce. Single women are penalised for having children and are in general stigmatised. Without a reproduction permit, the government can deny their children birth certificates and by extension seriously impede the child's access to school and health care. If women give birth outside of wedlock, they are routinely fined. Victorian attitudes to illegitimacy are being applied by a state with infinite access to information and a bureaucracy willing to use it to persecute unauthorised lifestyles. There is more than a hint of racism and eugenics in the state's policies around parenthood and gender. The government wants Han women, the dominant ethnicity in Chinese society, to get pregnant and marry. But it is actively pushing ethnic minority women not to reproduce. In some cases, as in the case of the Uyghurs, this discouragement goes so far as forced sterilization. While Uyghur women are prevented from having large families, Han women living in the same area are not. The picture for women in China might seem bleak. In some senses, women's rights are going backwards and conservative family models are becoming more entrenched. The emerging feminist movement faces obstacles that we could only dream of navigating. But it is, despite everything, emerging. So too is a new wave of workers' resistance in factories. Much will depend on the ability of activists like the Feminist Five to link up, with their, link up their struggle to a broader working class movement against the CCCP regime. They will face prison and worse, but if recent years have showed, shown us anything, it is that the movements they lead are capable of growing and thriving when the odds seems insurmountable. Page 9. One year on, feminists and the Ukrainian left still fighting. Michael Baker spoke with Lenka Golenak and Kat Katerina Brie Kostrova, two activists from the Ukrainian socialist organisation Socialny Ruk, socialist social movement, <coughs> about how the war is affecting the struggle for women's liberation in Ukraine and how the international feminist movements can help. Alenki and Brie visited the UK for a speaker tour organised by Workers' Liberty between the 4th and the 16th of March. Question. Can you both introduce yourselves and Sotsialny Ruk? <coughs> Brie. My comrades call me Brie. I came to the left about 2014 when I joined the Independent Student, Student Union Direct Action. After that I was part of different queer feminists and other leftist organisations. I joined Sotsialny Ruk in 2019 and since 2020 I've been on its executive board. I'm responsible for internal communications and feminist issues, including different partnerships with queer and feminist organisations in Ukraine. I also created a project to gather people interested in leftist ideas, a summer school which explores, explores the topics of trade unions, environmental issues, feminism, 
anti-capitalism, social justice, etc. Sozialny Ruch is a civil organization for now, but aims to become a political party. It was established in 2016. We mostly work with different trade unions and organizations, and we have around 100 members. Olenka. I'm a socialist, sociologist and researcher. I conduct interviews with people and write reports about their struggles. Before the war, I dealt with migration and various urban issues. I used to research how Ukrainian musicians work overseas. Then the war began and I started researching the experiences of people living in Ukraine, staying in cities close to the front line. I joined Sotsialny Ruk after the beginning of the war, actually during the summer school that Brie organises. Question. What effect has the war had on traditional feminist social issues like domestic violence, marriage and divorce, access to abortions and pregnancy and childcare? The war has clearly had a massive effect on infrastructure. What areas of women's rights do you think this has affected? Olenka. The war has definitely worsened the situation in terms of gender roles and stereotypes. Men are increasingly portrayed as warriors defending their families and their nation. Women are expected to be good mothers, even more so than before. But it's not just about discourses, it's about practices as well, because it's mostly men who are at the front line. There are a lot of people of all genders fighting, but it's still mostly men and therefore it's mostly women who stay at home looking after children or other relatives. Then there's the infrastructure. A lot of schools and kindergartens were closed or ruined because of the war. A lot of schools switched to an online format, so Ukrainian women now perform even more unpaid reproductive labour than they used to. A lot of volunteer jobs are also done by women. In the long term, the fact that women are staying at home because the kindergartens are closed in many regions, will probably result in an increase in the pay gap between men and women. Regarding to access to <coughs> abortions, there's no data, no statistics, but it's definitely an issue for women fleeing to Poland. I think Ukrainians mostly go to Poland because it's close, but abortions are prohibited there, so lots of Ukrainian refugees were complaining that it was very difficult for them to get an abortion, even if they were survivors of rape. They had to go to Germany or elsewhere to get it. Brie. And even in Ukraine, <coughs> in some regions, women also don't have access to different plan B pills and so on, so it's definitely a problem here too. Question. What are the main feminist groups in Ukraine? Do they tend to be more recent or older and more established? How have they adapted to wartime activity? Brie. There are a lot of feminist organisations in Ukraine and their numbers number has grown significantly in recent years. I think this is because the ideas have become more popular in Ukrainian society. These organizations are usually autonomous, but very often cooperate with each other. I myself am part of a feminist organization called the Femme Solution Collective, which has been operating in Ukraine since 2016. Before the full-scale invasion of Ukraine, we were an educational project. We covered topics like the LGBTQ plus community, queer feminism and the like. 
We also worked with students a lot, providing all kinds of lectures. But after the invasion, we started to focus mostly on humanitarian aid, as the most vulnerable groups became even more vulnerable during the war. We now provide support to women and children and people with mental health issues. A similar process took place with many other feminist organisations. Most of them have now reorganised into humanitarian aid organisations. We try to do other things. We work with the media, for example, and we try to engage with internally displaced women. But it's really hard to do because our organisations have very limited resources and we don't have enough staff to do all of these things right now. Question. How does Sotsialny Ruk orientate itself towards feminist politics and LGBTQ plus politics in Ukraine? Brie. <coughs> For many years, Sotsialny Ruk has supported the 8th March International Women's Day celebrations and marches in support of the LGBTQ plus community. We also work with queer organisations on labour laws and legislative changes. For example, we have a situation now in which the word gender has just been introduced for the first time to our labour laws, which caused a big reaction from right-wing radicals. SR responded at the time by openly supporting the position of the LGBTQ plus community on the issue. Recently, I initiated the creation of a women and LGBTI group within the organisation so that queer people and women in the group can organise together. I hope this year we can devote more time to queer and feminist politics. So far we've not been able to. For a while there weren't many people in the organisation, but more have joined now, so we're looking forward to doing more work on feminist issues this year. Question. You've mentioned internal displacement. How has that changed the nature of local and regional political organising? Are there prospects for doing practical work with women who, with people who live near the front lines? Olenka, I was actually discussing this with a colleague that I conduct interviews with. We believe that the main thing we can do right now is just document the experiences people are having so this information can be collated and analysed. But that's more about research. Around 8 million people have become internally displaced in Ukraine this means that there are a lot of activists that have been moving to different regions, so a lot of initiatives or groups have re relocated to relatively safer locations. On the one hand, it's great for these groups and for the communities they've relocated to because new social connections are being developed and so on. On the other hand, the cities and communities they've left don't have them anymore, so there is a lack of activist resources in areas closer to the front line. In this respect, migration brings both advantages and disadvantages. The same goes for people moving overseas. If they are activists, if they belong to leftists or other groups, then this migration helps local community initiatives, but they're needed here as well. Especially considering that a lot of the work we do these days is not just political, there's a lot of humanitarian work to be done. Question. What are the main things you hear from the people you interview who live on the front lines? Alenka, there's so much to say. Perhaps one interesting detail comes from the fact that a lot of people are losing their jobs during the war. 
factories and businesses are being shut down and there are lots of labour rights issues. I notice in interviews that people seem to realise that their problems are shared with others and aren't just individual to them. Very often they are ready to fight for their labour rights and sue their employers, which is something I hadn't noticed as much before the war. One woman from Kramatorsk told me during an interview that before the war she wouldn't have been so active in fighting her employer, but now, after surviving war, she's no longer scared of workplace conflict. Question. Bree. Uh, question. <laughs> Some of your student comrades are involved in a student organization in Ukraine. Could you tell us a bit about it? Bree. Direct action has existed since 2008 and the community has existed in some form since the 90s. It's been around for a long time and our student members have simply revived it. I was part of this organisation from 2014 to 2019. I ran the Libertarian Film Club, the Lecture Club and I also organised several demos with them against cuts to scholarships and sexual abuse in universities. It was my first experience of a left-wing organisation. I'm really delighted that our student activists have decided to revive direct action because I really believe students must work together on the political level. They are the one of the most powerful social forces that exists. Their main focus now is cooperating with Youth for Ukrainian Resistance, a co coalition of international international university students are organising an international solidarity campaign and collecting signatures on an open statement. They also want to educate people from different backgrounds using social media and once it has all been established they would like to continue by doing lectures and other activities like that. They now have 15 members with another 10 waiting for approval so it's already made a great start. For a long time, Sotsialny Ruk was the only leftist organisation here, so I'm really happy that uh, direct action is back, uh, page 11, <coughs> and operating in Ukraine again. Question. It's wonderful news. Before we finish, is there anything you think isn't being discussed as much as it should, or anything you'd like to highlight? Olenka, I think that I think what we really want most of all is for the leftist and feminist community outside of Ukraine to support our armed resistance and to understand that we're fighting Russian imperialism and it's not simply a fight between two governments. Question. That brings us quite neatly to the last question. What kind of support and discussion would you like to see from an internationalist feminists outside of Ukraine, which campaigns, which forms of solidarity need attention or material supports beyond the initiatives you've already mentioned? Bree, we really need campaigns for arming Ukraine. That's the most important thing right now. But there are, lots of, there are also lots of grassroots organisations that provide direct help to people here, like Fem Solution. We don't have a lot of monetary support, but we have a lot of people coming to us and requesting help. Last year, we, we already sent almost 800 packages of hygienic products and clothes to internally displaced women, and we also supported a lot of children. For, 
providing all kinds of school materials. We also started some work with people in the Kherson region this year and we want to be able to support them properly. Elenka, there are lots of grassroots initiatives in Ukraine and they can react very quickly to meet people's needs. Unlike other, uh, unlike the bigger organisations that get most of the attention and funding. So in terms of solidarity and support, it's really important to give financial support to small local initiatives. They solve people's problems right away the next day without all the bureaucracy and they really lack funding. They're usually volunteer-led without any salaries or full-time employees. What can we learn from the women in Iran by Delia Parvani? A spirit of unity. Iranian protest slogans are radical. They don't beat about the bush. One that struck me, struck, stuck with me from the current women's movement in Iran is this. Eger bab ham yaki nashim yiki yiki koshte mashim. If we don't become one, one by one we will be killed. It's a fitting mantra for a movement with remarkable longevity and global reach. The sentiment of unity has been key to the ability of protest movements to oppose the Islamic regime. In recent months, across boundaries of gender, age, class, ethnicity and border, the Iranian people have taken to the streets together. This is especially impressive because the very thing that sparked the protests now in the fourth month was the hijab, a symbol deployed by the regime precisely to divide its opponents. When Yina Masi Amini <coughs> was killed by the morality police in Tehran, Tehran for not wearing headscarf properly, the Iranian people respond, responded by hitting to the very heart of the patriarchal state. The protesters know that women's issues are everybody's issues. There is much in that for socialists to learn from. Protest movements are not uncommon in Iran. They flare up as a result of a specific issue, a disputed election in 2009, uh, economic problems in 2017, increased gasoline prices in 2019. But underpinning them all is despair at corruption, general economic decline and poor material conditions. The degradation of Iran, which many fear is on its way to becoming a failed state, has been overseen by the Ayatollahs of the Islamic Republic, headed by Supreme Leader Ali Khamenei. If we can locate the origin of the current protest movement, which some are called, calling the world's first feminist revolution in opposition to the hijab laws, then what makes it feel so different is that men are joining in and making hijab their issue too. The meaning of the hijab the Islamic Republic is a patriarchal institution. Patriarchy is central to its ideology and, it's, and isn't pinned exclusively to its Islamism. The hijab has long been a symbol of clerical rule and an instrument of policing that is used to distract the population from the dire state of the country. In the last century, it has at times been enforced and at others banned. Of course, when we call for the end of the hijab, we call for the end of compulsory hijab. The hijab's symbolic value has been inverted by the regime's opponents. 
The hijab now removed from women's heads is a symbol of the woman life freedom movement. Photographs and protest arts proliferate of the hijab um, pulled off, raised or burning, or replaced with flowering hair or scissors. In a counterattack, the Islamic Republic has erected billboards on Tehran depicting prominent women wearing the hijab as crude propaganda. The very women pictured have spoken out against the move since their pictures were used without their consent. The hijab is so fundamental to the regime's population control tactics that the end to compulsory veiling is understood to be the kill switch on the whole regime. Why is this? Ayatollah Khomeini said that the veiling of women is key to the ideology of the Islamic Republic. It is a tool of segregation and a people divided and distracted cannot overthrow their rulers. Images of primary school girls bareheaded raising the fingers at classroom photographs of the Ayatollah and shouting down visiting mullahs showcase the Saturnalian turn of events and the early winds of the movement. Women are now walking around Iran without the hijab, the authorities having been forced to capitulate to the pressure of the protesters. The ethnic question. While we discuss patriarchy, <coughs> we must not forget the discrimination on the basis of ethnicity that is rampant in Iran. Gina Masa Amini's status as a woman has been central to the collective mourning and mobilization over her death, but Kurdish identity should be as well. With the term Persian often used interchangeably to mean Iranian, it's not always clear to onlookers that Iran is home to a rich array of different ethnicities, indigenous groups and languages. One of these are the persecuted Kurdish minority predominantly resident in the southwest of the country. Kurdish names are banned in Iran, forcing families to register children with non-Kurdish names and making their identities illegal. Gina was what her family calls her, but Masa is how she is known to us. Iran's colonialism is inherent even in the way we remember the Islamic Republic victims. Gina's Kurdish identity cannot be separated from her womanhood. Even the movement's main slogan, Women, Life, Freedom, originates from Kurdistan. Jin Yang Azadi is a rallying cry from the Kurdistan women's liberation movement chanted during the Rojava revolution in 2012. It is rooted in anti-capitalism, anti-imperialist resistance. The way that the slogan has echoed around the world demonstrates the universal struggle for women's liberation. Under one banner, the death of Gina Masa Amini has shaken the people of Iran and their comrades around the world. They have risen up and are demanding an end to decades of oppression under the guise of religion. The unity is key to the success of the movement and whatever comes next. The Iranian people won't be assuaged by the mere removal of the compulsory headscarf or any other reformist measures. The women-led movement is for the freedom of all people in Iran, driven by the understanding that if we don't become one, the state will defeat us one by one. 
The movement must now build on its success in articulating grievances by making a united call for transformative change, the release of all political prisoners, legal equality for women, the right to Kurdish self-determination, free trade unions, freedom of speech and assembly, and the rebuilding of the country as a secular state. This must take place under one banner, the end of the Islamic Republic. Page 13. Hookers Against Hardship by Kelly Rogers. The cost of living crisis has hit everyone hard and sex workers are in an especially precarious position. Many are experiencing a sharp fall in income as customers cancel appointments and workplaces close. Unlike most other workers, sex workers are denied basic labour protections such as paid six leave, maternity pay and regulated hours. So at a time when more and more women will be turning to sex work to feed themselves and their families, sex workers are, faced, are facing a sharp rise in financial hardship. The new campaign, Hookers Against Hardship, which has brought together a coalition of major sex work worker-led organisations in the UK, has collected some case studies from sex workers about their experiences during the cost of living crisis. Sex Workers' Voices um, Scarlet <coughs> In-Person Sex Worker I wanted to take, away <coughs> take time away after being assaulted at my last booking, but I don't feel able to. It's been quiet and, it, and rising bills are constantly in the back of my mind, so I don't feel like I can say no to any work that comes my way. Angelica <coughs> Stripper and Online Sex Worker I'm going to have to go back to work soon, eight weeks after giving birth to my baby. I'd like to keep not working for longer, but I can't manage. The maternity allowance you get from the government isn't enough to cover my bills right now. Joanna Stripper I've noticed that in the strip club that <coughs> I work in, people are starting to ask for more for less. So they want me to do more and they want to pay less for it. And these customers know they have no have the power, they know exactly what they can get from us and they know that we're the most desperate. Damien, online worker and escort. When I started OnlyFans, I never thought I'd, I'd move back to escorting. I used to get messages from guys asking to meet me. I'd say, I'd just say no or ignore them. I started last year and had built a following on Twitter but now they've suspended my account and I'm starting from scratch. I've started meeting clients again. I don't feel I have a choice. I even have some clients who want me to take rugs with them. I hate it. Demands Hookers and hardship are arguing for the following demands as an urgent step to support sex workers in the current economic and political climate. <coughs> One, an end to benefit sanctions. 2. An increase in benefit payments. Many sex workers report resorting to sex work after they receive benefit sanctions. Already on the brink of destitution, sanctions can be the final straw for many. Government policy then is driving people towards sex work, especially now as people face the pressures of the cost of living crisis. Benefits should be raised to a real living wage, 
and provide for a decent standard of living for recipients and their families. Three, rent controls. <coughs> Four, a moratorium <coughs> on evictions. Rent is for many people the biggest expenditure each month and the situation is set to get worse with rents growing at the fastest rate for more than a decade. A UK-wide control on rents would be a huge step towards financial security for working class people. Sex workers are at a particularly high risk of eviction because landlords are able to evict them even if they believe that they're doing sex work from their flat. During part of the pandemic, the government put in place an evictions ban. The same should be reintroduced now. Amnesty from arrest and fines for sex workers. That's five. Six, the decriminalisation of sex work. <laughs> I became a, a by Rachel, Rachel in-person sex worker. I became a sex worker because it was the only job that suited my life. I have a disabled child and it's difficult with all the hospital appointments and looking after her. I needed to work and earn a set amount of money when a bill came in. I've been disqualified from jobs purely on the grounds that I've been charged with prostitution. Once you've got that record, it's there for life. All they're doing now by keeping it criminalised is keeping women out on the street. You're taking from them the choice to leave. End of her statement. Hundreds of sex workers are prosecuted or threatened with prosecution each year under laws against soliciting and brothel keeping. Women of colour, migrant women and trans women are particularly at risk. It is illegal for two people to work together from the same flat, which means that people are forced to work alone, making them much more vulnerable to violence. Unsurprisingly, the threat of arrest acts as a deterrent against reporting violence they suffer. While sex workers remain on the margins of society and protected by the law, they will be open to exploitation by clients and managers, their pairing conditions will remain low, and the cycle of criminalisation and poverty will continue. Unionisation As with other industries, the best defence against unscrupulous bosses in the sex industry is worker organisation and collective action. Current laws make it extremely difficult for sex workers to unionise. In spite of this, sex workers have long been banding together to form mutual aid and support networks, and recent efforts by United Voices of the Workers' Union, Voices of the World's Union, have brought sex workers together into a branch of the, the union. For the last decade, government policy has used concerns about trafficking as a pretext to create a hostile environment for migrant sex workers in particular. Raids on premises, club closures, arrests and deportations have served to force sex work further underground and make working conditions even more precarious and dangerous. Ironically, it is migrant sex workers themselves that are best placed to identify and report trafficking when and where it happens and the hostile environment that migrant workers face makes this less likely, not more. Here too, unionisation and increased rights for workers in sectors associated with trafficking would go a long way to answer the problem. Migrant farm workers, hotel workers, domestic workers, workers in nail bars, brothels and car washers all need 
greater protection both in law and in the form of worker organisation. As in other industries, when workers band together and refuse to be divided by race or immigration status, they can confront injustice and exploitation through collective action. But the criminalisation of workplaces is a huge barrier to organising effectively. Unionisation and decriminalisation need to go hand in hand. Unionisation will only go so far so long as sex workers are prosecuted and marginalised for the work they do. But at the same time, the decriminalisation of sex work needs to happen in context of sex workers already being organised to make sure that decriminalisation is done in the interests of the sex workers themselves, not just bosses. Page 15. <coughs> Poetry versus Oppression. Laura Taylor. Uh, by Janine Booth, Poetry Editor. The Women's Fight Back will be featuring women, po women poets in every issue. Our first poet in this new feature is Laura Taylor. Laura's poems, including the poem featured here, are sharp commentary on the struggles of working class, especially working class women's lives. Life hacks, lampoons, the advice being given to us on how to survive the current cost of living crisis. Laura says, quotes, <clears throat> I was born into a working class family in the north of England in 1968. I have challenged arbitrary forms of authority all my life. Obsessed with words and language since my early childhood, I believe in the power of poetry. Poetry is a means by which silent voices can speak and hidden ears listen, in quotes. She has written uh, three poetry collections published in Flapjack Press and performs at gigs and festivals across the UK. The poem, Life Hacks. I've heard you can run a car on nothing but good faith. If you're careful, who's for soup? I make it for out of stones. Fill out, fill our pockets with them afterwards. They make you feel fatter, like your ribs don't rattle and you, the hunger doesn't matter. Then when you drown, I read something somewhere. <clears throat> you can make your guests go further if you never put the heating on or dress in feather boas and an old string vest. Who's for stew? I make it out of dew and fresh air. Feeds a family of four for a year, maybe more, with a side of despair and meshed depression. I was advised that a cap is not a cap in that way, not protective, a cover, a lid, to keep the wayward in, to stop mad dogs making profits on the back of destitution. Who's for chips? I make them out of little bits of fluff, fry them in a dream. I once had about grease. They taste of greed and unremitting grind. I've been told that you don't really need to keep clean. Just shower in the rain, let the trickle down. Bathe you in its piss. Who's for cake? Eat and mess. Layers of distress. And sell your pets to the rent on affordable homes. Serve with loans and filthy lucre for a weekday check cheat. Page 16. Report, Drag Queens versus the Far Right by Hector Lopes. In recent months, <coughs> far-right mobilisations have grown alarmingly. Patriotic Alternative, which was founded in 2019, has begun to grow, setting up shop in communities around hotels being used to house refugees. 
Violent protests have taken place outside a number of refugee hotels, starting with a riot in Nosley in mid-February, and anti-fascist presence has been patchy. Well, patriotic alternative have primarily targeted migrants, they've also engaged in an opportunistic campaign against trans people and drag performers, making use of the toxic atmosphere on the issue. On Saturday, the 11th of February, a clash between the far-right and anti-fascists took place outside the Tate Britain. The fascist organisation Patriotic Alternative had called a demonstration in protest at the Drag Queen Story Hour event that the gallery had booked, led by drag artist Ada H.T. Stand up to racism along with activist networks such as Transgender Action Block and London Anti-Fascist Assembly appeared for a counter-demonstration. The anti-fascist contingent of 70 to 100 people congregated at 10am and the first vocal anti-drag activists started arriving half an hour later. At first the protest was made up of what seemed to be hardcore anti-trans activists mixed with evangelical Christians and the absence of a significant police presence meant they were quickly surrounded by the counter-protest. Patriotic <coughs> alternatives gaggle of eight to ten men rounded the corner shortly afterwards, holding placards that showed a stick-figure rendition of a heterosexual nuclear family unit being sheltered from a rainbow. The counter-protest collided with the PA men almost immediately, removing their placards and chasing them some considerable distance away from the Tate Britain. Other protesters began to arrive in the meantime, and there were several physical confrontations on the steps of the gallery before a much larger contingent of police arrived to separate the groups. This also coincided with the arrival of Piers Corbyn, spouting transphobia through a loudspeaker and accusing counter-protesters of being in the pay of George Soros. He was escorted by the police to stand alongside the far-right anti-evangelicals. The makeup of the protesters was a gradient that stretched from the openly white supremacist patriotic alternative, who among other abuse accused Hope Not Hate researcher Joe Mulhall of being too swarthy to be English, through a, a clump of generic generic far-right and gender-critical thugs accusing the anti-fascists of being groomers to evangelical Christians. Former Worthing Tory councillor Tim Wells, who was suspended from the Conservative Party in 2021 over his ties to the far-right, was also seen at the protests. Some protesters gained access to the inside of the building but failed to disrupt the story hour event and one was arrested for racially abusing a police officer. While the events being protested went ahead in this case, Patriotic Alternative have successfully stopped other drag queen story time events from taking place around the country and have organised rallies in city centres that have gone unchallenged by anti-fascist forces. The resurgence of a fascist street movement is a real present danger and it is co-opting the vocally transphobic gender-critical movement, as well as the cost-of-living crisis to build its ranks. The labour movement needs to organise and confront these rallies head-on, 
wherever they happen. Page 17. Child Care Families and Another Failing System by Annabel Clayton. Public child care not only benefits children's development but acts as an equaliser for lower income families to claw their way out of ever increasing poverty. In 2021, the UK spent less than 0.1% of GDP on it, a miserably low figure in comparison to the rest of Europe and other developed OECD countries. The 2022 Department for Education, DFE's, Survey of Child Care and Early Years Providers, SCEYP, estimated that there were 60,000 providers in England with at least one child aged 0 to 4. The UK government provides inadequate term time only support schemes for all children aged 3 to 4 and some children aged 2 and only offers a tax back scheme for children aged 0 to 2. With the minimum wage in 2022 being £9.18 Childcare could equate to 62% of a single person's hourly pay, not allowing for travel time. Why is childcare in the UK so expensive, and what kind of quality are we paying for? Although 76% of costs for group-based providers are attributed to staff wages, the average yearly income for early years practitioners across the UK, including London, is only £19,000. Training costs come to a meagre 1% of the total cost, and only 3% is spent on materials such as books, toys and equipment. Invaded by profiteers. An OECD report in 2016 argued that, quote, a market-based approach to child care leaves public authorities with less control over fees and less control over when and where services are provided, end quotes. But the market is exactly the tool our government uses. As with any profit-driven organisation, this results in providers vacating less profitable areas, leaving those in lower-income areas without access to provision at all. In 2017-18, to 18, the UK childcare market was valued at £5.5 billion, with private sector nurseries generating an estimated income of £4.7 billion. 85%. 3.3 billion pounds of this was generated by incorporated companies and 1.4 billion pounds generated by sole traders and partnerships. During the COVID-19 crisis, many nurseries were brought, brought up by large profits for pro, private for profit groups. A whopping 84% of childcare is delivered by for-profit providers in the UK compared to 3% and 4% in Germany or France. The UCL with Nuffield Foundation investigated the consequences of large private for-profit groups invading the childcare sector. Their findings suggest that puts many nurseries at risk. They continually expand their provision while incurring more and more debt to shareholders and investors. This not only threatens the availability of childcare, but also drives up childcare prices, making it mainly unaffordable for many low-income families under until children are of an age to qualify 
for heavily subsidised government childcare schemes. Children England <coughs> have expressed concerns that this rapid privatisation has entered the sector without any meaningful evaluation of potential risks. Quotes, Childcare is a labour-intensive industry and therefore cost-cutting measures and invariably uh, centre on staffing costs, either employing fewer or cheaper staff. This in turn runs the risk of increasing in ter- turnover and lowering the quality of the care provided. End What's the alternative? By way of comparison, we can also have charitable and social enterprise childcare in the not-for-profit sector. This, the increased accountability in these models to bodies such as the Charity Commission, trustees, staff and parents makes them more likely to deliver on their social aims and submit transparent accounts. There's evidence to suggest that these organisations consider and adequately cater for children with vulnerabilities and complex needs much better than the private sector. The fact that any surplus is reinvested into childcare rather than being creamed off as profit, aids the quality of care and helps to bring down costs, though not by enough. Norway has a policy that genuinely seeks to enable parents to return to work. The system is semi-means tested, with a national price cap of 6% of a family's income. Funding is provided to municipalities from the government and local government then has a statutory duty to provide sufficient childcare for all local families. As a result, parental fees only constitute about 15% of the childcare running costs, while the rest is subsidised by the local municipalities. Not only does this system boast affordable early years childcare for children, it also ensures that private childcare operations are not making more than a reasonable profit and dictates that wages must be paid equal to or higher than municipal run settings. Other models of childcare are seeing a small scale revival, such as the workplace childcare scheme operated by Patagonia in the US and parent-led cooperatives in Canada. Both schemes boast a more involved and holistic approach between early years, practitioners and parents, and this benefits the quality of childcare. In parent-led childcare, the operation is often staffed by a mix of volunteers and paid employees, decreasing costs for families and creating a stronger bonds between parents and staff. This drastically improves the retention of staff and offers skill-based experience to parents. Moved on to page 17. In the US, <coughs> Patagonia provides on-site child care at child development centres on their two main sites. Parents are actively encouraged to visit their children during the day. Young children can still be breastfed by their mothers and they even operate shuttle buses for older children after school. Patagonia offers parents the option to bring their babies to work with a relative or childcare professional to help look after them when they are not based at a location with on-site childcare. For parents that wish to focus solely on childcare in those early years, we should continue to campaign for improved maternity, paternity and shared parental leave, as well as access to basic early years training. For parents that wished or need to return to work, 
it is clear that there are other successful models out there. For now, however, the UK government is choosing a chaotic patchwork of private provision over providing decent and affordable childcare. Letter to Women's Fights Back, sent in by Mara. In waging a battle on Idpol, many on the left lose their perspective. It is true that an over-reliance on lived experience can produce problems, but the phrase, this is my lived experience, you can't argue with it, rarely appears. When it does, it is almost never imposed. The much greater problem, by far, is that people's lived experience is routinely ignored and belittled, including on the left. Very recently, some leaders of the Spanish left party, Podemos, didn't want to have a clear position on abortion because it was divisive. Issues of sexism within the left, unequal division of labour, being dismissed and talked over, our issues treated as trivial, the tolerance of sexual and domestic violence, have been named as problems since before I was born. They are still a glaring issue in our movement. Take my local trades council, which told me that a particular activist, with multiple credible complaints of sexual assault made against him, was just a bit Jack the Lad. Many on the left <coughs> assume identity politics to be much more of a force than it is, and assume that we have much more pro- we have made much more progress on it than we really have. Subconsciously, they conflate progress on LGBT rights, feminism, and anti-racism since the 1970s with the concurrent defeat of the labour movement. But this is ahistorical including and fighting for the diverse material needs of everybody in the working class doesn't weaken us. It makes the class struggle more likely to succeed. The reality is that women's experiences are still ignored and our struggles for our material needs are still treated as divisive within the movement. The amount of time that some comrades spend complaining about Idpol is out of touch with this reality. Page 20. Art History. Hannah Hoch, the innovative, enduring and undervalued woman of Berlin, Dada, by Kerry Evans. The First World War, the first truly mechanised global war, began on the 28th of July 1914. What started as a squabble between the great empires of Europe resulted in the mass slaughter of the working class across large swathes of the world. In the years that followed the war, the entire social order up to that point was ripped to shreds. Empires fell, new ones were born, revolutions took place, new countries were formed and new ideologies took root. Russia was the site of the world's only victorious communist revolution. It would eventually degenerate into one of the greatest stains on history, Stalin's USSR. In Italy, Spain and Germany, the seeds of fascism were beginning to take hold, leading to what were probably the greatest tragedies of the 20th century, the rise of the Nazi party, the outbreak of the Second World War and the Holocaust. Yet within this vortex of violence, chaos, blood and pain, new and pioneering arts movements would be born. These movements are collectively referred to as the 20th century avant-garde. 
these visceral, innovative, sometimes beautiful, often difficult art movements were a reaction to the enormity of the social change and collapse taking place. One of the first avant-garde art movements to appear was Dada. Dada emerges. Dada was founded in 1916 at the Cabaret Voltaire, an artistic nightclub in Zurich, Switzerland, coincidentally situated on the same street that Lenin was living at the time. Dada was a movement that consciously rejected logic, reason, asceticism and the established good taste of bourgeois society. Dadaists were using art as a way to express their dismay at the carnage of the First World War and the social interests that created it. Abstraction was a weapon to fight against the social and political ideas of the time. Dadaists shocked and provoked in order to subvert a social convention because they believed it was bourgeois society's apathy that led to war. The performance at the Cabaret Voltaire tended to be nonsense poetry, interpretive dance, performance art and nonsensical plays. The first night at the Cabaret Voltaire saw the now iconic Zeda performance Caruane. During this performance, Hugo Ball took to the street, the stage, dressed in a vaguely pa papal-looking costume made of cardboard tubes and litter that included a large cone hat. He then rhythmically chanted a poem of nonsense words that were arranged to convey emotion. The resulting lack of sense represented the inability of European political and religious powers to solve their differences through the use of rational language, leading us all into war. Before long, Dada was an international art movement with collectives emerging in France, New York, Berlin, Cologne, the Netherlands, Georgia, Russia, Japan, Italy and Yugoslavia. Dadaism as a political movement. The most expressly political of these Dada collectives were the Berlin Dadaists, of which Hannah Hoch was a member. The Berlin Dadaists considered themselves communists and many joined the Communist Party of Germany, KPD, in 1919. The Dadaist painter Max Ernst once wrote to the poet Tristan Zara, complaining that, quotes, the German intellectuals can neither shit nor piss without ideology, end quotes, and he wasn't exactly wrong. Spurred by the failed communist revolt in Germany and the assassination of Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Liebknecht in 1919, the Berlin Dadaists produced the satirical magazine Jedermann Sein Eigner Fassball, which translates to Everyone Their Own Football. This title is a sarcastic reference to a promise, going on to page 21, made by King Henry the fourth of France, that peasants would enjoy a, a chicken in the pots every Sunday. The cover was a parody of conservative media and included the photomontage entitled Who is the Most Beautiful, which depicted a beauty contest between German political and military leaders of the time. The cover was a scathing attack on the reforms and political spectacle offered by the SDB led government. 
In order to distribute the satirical magazine, the editorial team undertook a mass performance arts piece where they held a mock funeral procession through Berlin while giving out the paper. This included dressing in full funeral attire, riding in a horse-driven carriage and being followed through the streets by bands, bands playing funeral music. By the time the profession made it to the working-class districts of Berlin, they were met by enthusiasm and jubilance from the gathered crowd who joined in their thousands. The procession then turned into a spontaneous protest, which had to be broken up by the police, and the publication was immediately banned by the state. Most famously, during the first international Dada exhibition held in Berlin on 5th of June 1920, the Berlin Dadaists showcased a piece called Prussian Archangel. This piece was an effigy of a German military officer with a pig's head attached to it. The pig was wearing a placard that said, Hung by the Revolution, and in order to understand the art completely, one should drill day, daily for 12 hours with a heavy backpack in full marching order on the Tempelhofer field. The stunts led to two artists, Hartfield and Schlichter, being charged with defamation against the German army. Artist George Gross was also quoted as saying, quotes, If one considers my work, art depends entirely on whether they believe the future belongs to the working class. End quotes. Misogyny in the movement. Yet behind all this revolutionary fervour and self-proclaimed progressiveness, there laid a deep-rooted and violent misogyny at the heart of the Berlin Dadaists. This misogyny was exemplified in the work and in the life and work of the only female Berlin Dadaists, Hannah Hock. Hannah was a pioneering feminist artist who almost single-handedly invented the medium of photomontage. Yet she spent her life and career being despised, belittled and abused by the men of Berlin Dada. Gross and Hartfield actively opposed her work being ex exhibited at the first Dada International Exhibition, purely on the grounds that she was a woman. Even when she was allowed to work, she was still expected to fetch beer and sandwiches for the men. Hannah was born in Gotha, uh, Germany on November the 1st, 1889. When she first showed her interest in art as a child, she, her father told her, uh, quotes, a girl should get married and forget about studying arts, end quotes. At 15, her father pulled her out of school to look after her younger siblings. Despite this, she enrolled herself at the School of Applied Art in Berlin to study glass and ceramic design in 1912. She later studied graphic arts in the School of the Royal M Museum of Applied Arts, where she met fa fellow Dadaists and boyfriend Raoul Hausmann. Hausmann was physically and mentally abusive to Hoch throughout their relationship. He would berate her regularly and spoke openly about his fantasies of murdering her. Despite Hausmann having a wife whom he never divorced or broke up with, when Hannah suggested they might marry, Hausmann flew into rage and berated Hannah for her ridiculous bourgeois sentimentality. This relationship acted as the inspiration for Hannah's short story, The Painter, 1920, 
in which an artist spirals into the existential crisis because his lover asked him, quotes, to do the dishes at least four times in four years, end quotes. Hoch emerges. Ironically, it was during this period that Hannah really started to develop her own style of collage and photomontage, a practice that has gone on to be the most influential legacy of Dada. Her collage work is made up of media clippings, paintings, embroidery and other crafting practices. It focuses on satirising government officials and prevailing social norms and subverting accepted ideas about femininity. In 1916, at Hausmann's insistence, Hannah started working in a handicraft department of a publisher where she designed dress, lace and handiwork designs for Lady Magazine, page 22, and the practical Berlin women. Not only did this professional work influence her personal style, but in these roles she was able to collect a lot of the raw materials necessary to create her art. From the workplace she would steal discarded newsprint, photos, paints and sewing equipment. Perhaps her most famous work is Cut with the Kitchen Knife Through the Last Weimere Beer Belly Cultural Epoch in Germany in 1919. The work is abstract, but insofar as it has any flow, there are uh, data and anti-data areas to the large photomontage. In the data area, you see cutouts of other Dadaists' artists, masses of workers in cities, machinery, pictures of Marx and Lenin, and bits of text. On the anti-data side, you have German politicians, generals, soldiers, and headless showgirls. In her work, the Beautiful Girl, 1920, Hannah takes aims directly at the idea of the new woman, popular in the Weimar Republic at the time. This is an idealised woman who is self-assured, employed and sexually liberated. In interwar Germany, the idealised new woman contrasted starkly with the reality of mass unemployment, economic instability and prevailing social ideas. Women could now work, but they were almost never afforded work that wasn't menial, low-paid or degrading. The piece <coughs> uses clippings of women from ad ad advertisement advertisements juxtaposed against car parts and other mechanised items to critique the use of the female body in the industrialisation and modernisation process. It points towards a reality in which being allowed to vote and cut your hair short is being used to trick women into believing they are no longer being subjugated. Written back into history. Thankfully, Hannah eventually left Hausmann and began a lesbian relationship with the poet and writer Till Brugman. In this period, she also moved away from the Berlin Dada Collective. Under the Nazi regime, she was listed as a degenerate artist and a cultural Bolshevik, and her work was deemed immoral. This meant she spent the Second World War hidden and living anonymously in a small cottage. However, she still continued to produce art until her death. Anna's work wasn't just politically forward-thinking for the time, focusing on themes such as gender, sexism, race and inequality. It was beautiful, technically complex and completely innovative in form. We can still see echoes of Hannah in the world around us today. 
Her work pioneered a lot of the rules of graphic design we take for granted now. She was also an inspiration behind the early punk aesthetic and the Zion movement of the 1970s. This lineage is clear, not only in punk's use of collage and appropriation of newsprints, but also its use of primary colours, politically charged composition and venomous sarcasm. Hannah's work was routinely left out of Dadaist's exhibitions right up until the very late 60s. Even after her death in 1978, Hannah was still belittled and disrespected by the media and art establishment. Headlines at the time described her as the Good Girl of Dada, a name given to her by fellow Dadaists Hans Richter and the bob-haired moose of the Berlin set. New generations of feminists, artists, historians and curators are fighting to give her the credit she deserves. Many of her important works are now permanently displayed in the Museum of Modern Art in New York and her work is beginning to get solo exhibitions. However, we still have a long way to go before Hannah can rightly, rightfully claim her space among the big men of Dada who actively wrote her out of art history. Page 23, Review Hot Tramp, I Love You So by Jill Mountford A review of Re- Rebel Rebel, an exhibition by Sohela Sakhanvari at the Barbican, London. Three weeks after the state murder of Masha Amini in Iran, an exhibition of Sohela Sakhanvari's Iranian feminist icons, Rebel Rebel, opens at the Barbican in London. It is an outstanding curated exhibition of exquisite work that has taken several years to put together. It memorialises the lives of the 28 women who were exiled, obstructed and passed from sight after the 1979 (coughs) Islamic Revolution. The Curve at the Barbican has to be one of the most alluring exhibition spaces in the UK and Eleanor Nairns and her team have curated Sokhanvari's work brilliantly. Sokhanvari focuses her portraits on women from popular entertainment. Quotes, they were the most visible and so they were the ones who were most notably silenced after 1979. End quotes. creates miniatures that are finely and intricately painted using traditional Persian material and is inspired by found photographs from before 1979. Bold colours, patterns and geometric designs surround each of the women celebrated. Amidst this, there's a reference to William Morris, whose ideas on art and craft Sakhanvari admires. A lesser artist might have lost their subject in these vivid backgrounds, but not Sakhanvari. Her women stand out defiantly. Sokhanvari describes her portraits as seductive, um, quotes, not in the sexual sense, but in terms of a magnetic pulling you into the story to the opening of a Pandora's box, end quotes. The miniatures are exhibited against the huge curved wall of the gallery where floor, wall and ceiling have been decorated in enlarged Islamic geometric designs. This is taken from the background to Sokhanvari's painting, Anarchy of Silence, a portrait of Azar Shiva. 
Shiva made 20 films over 10 years, winning the award for Best Lead Female Actress in what was to be her last film, Rupsi, Prostitute. Not long after this, she ended her successful career in protest against film Farsi's sexual and financial exploitation of women. Women actors were often unpaid and coerced into sex scenes superfluous to the movie. Shiva left the industry in protest, saying she would rather sell chewing gum, which she did before fleeing to Paris after the 1979 revolution, where she still lives. Islamic art developed the use of beautiful, intricate geometric patterns in response to the Islamic principle of aniconism, which is the opposition to artistic representations of animal and human figures. The Quran says that the work of God is unique and unrepeatable. Sokhanbari takes these geometric patterns and places her figure's center stage. Icons to be contemplated, wondered and adored. More than this, an enormous geometric pattern that covers the walls and floor of the gallery creates a kaleidoscope experience in this Alice down the rabbit hole space. Page 24. It creates a sense of being pulled into the centre of any and all of the 28 portrait miniatures. Sakanvari says she wanted to, quote, quote, create a temple for these iconic women and to introduce an alternative story of Iranian women to the world. And I, I want to the viewer to have an immersive as well as an informative experience. End quotes. You can add an inspiring experience too. These beautifully crafted portraits are not labelled. The viewer knows neither the subject's name nor the title of the work itself, just a small number at the side of the portrait subtly painted into the geometric design. To find out more, you have to access the portrait biographies on the Barbican website. Every written story is as arresting as the painted version. In contrast to the miniature portraits, the exhibition starts with a monolith made of 27,000 tiny mirrored tiles, each placed by the artist, and ends with an enormous mirrored star hanging from the ceiling, through which the viewer can watch a myriad image of an old movie of icons singing and dancing. Sokhanvari says, quote, In my art, I speak about the collective through the narratives of individuals. In order to tell the story of pre-revolutionary Iran, I decided to focus on some of the best-known women. Images of women are used as ideologies, are used as symbols of Iranian political ideologies. The stories told in the West about their lives are all about the enforcement of veiling after the revolution. I wanted to tell an alternative story. End quotes. Uh, and more quotes. <laughs> the title. Rebel Rebel fits perfectly with the story of these women. They were all rebels in their own way, fighting for artistic freedoms. The story is not just about the Islamic Revolution and how these women were silenced, but about a conservative, male-dominated society that tried to hold them back. Once these women had reached their days of fame, a section of society considered them loose women for having done so. When Bowie sings, Hot Tramp, I Love You So, those lyrics are very poignant to me. End quotes.
Born in the north of Iran, Faranak Bikharhari is famous for work in 1960s Iranian cinema. From the late 50s, she became one of the country's most popular actors, making many films. One of these was 1962's The Last Hurdle, directed by Khosro Pavitsi, in which Bikharhari played a, a character who shoots her way through the patriarchy. The, um, also, um, The Rebel, which is a portrait of uh, Zinat Modeb in 2021. Um, aged only 14, Zinat Modeb was forced into an arranged marriage to a man 30 years her senior. She divorced at 17, but as a divorcee, she was not considered fully respectable in polite society and was unable to return to school. In 1948, she took the lead role in the groundbreaking film The Storm of Life. An older half-brother was so enraged by Modab's perceived immodesty that he made a repeated attempts on her life. Undeterred, she acted in several more films but also ventured into a career at Kushan's studio, becoming the first Iranian woman to edit films. In 1973, Modab moved to the US in protest against the Shah's regime. She lives today in Los Angeles. Page 25. Flora Tristan, Pioneer Socialist Feminist by Ellie Robinson. Flora Tristan, 1803-44, was a pioneer socialist feminist whose life and politics deserve to be more widely known and discussed by contemporary activists. Early feminists and socialists took vital steps forward whilst also making mistakes and omissions. Learning where our ideas come from is part of the renewal of 21st century socialist feminism. Life. Flora Celestine Teresa Henriette Tristan Mos Moskosko was born in on the 7th of April 1803. Her mother, Anne Pierre Lesney, was French and her father, Mariano, was Peruvian from a family of landowners descended from Spanish aristocrats. They met in Spain during the French Revolution, married and then settled in France in 1802. Mariano Tristan died in 1807, leaving the family in dire straits. The adolescent Flora was uh, employed by an engraver, André Chazel. They married when she was 17. By the age of 21, with three children, she separated. Tristan spent three years working as a maid for two English women, visiting England, Switzerland and Italy. After her return to Paris in 1828, Flora's ex-husband began to harass her. She decided to seek an inheritance from her father's estate and travelled to Peru in 1833-34, gaining a small legacy from her uncle. She made a living as a writer, publishing a pamphlet and some articles in 1835-36, then a semi-autobiography. The Peregrinations of a Pariah, 1833-1834, in 1837. She wrote about her domestic life with her ex-husband, who tried to seize custody of the children. In 1838, he attempted to murder her and was jailed for the shooting. 
She began to mix in socialist and feminist circles from about 1835. Her novel, Mephis, published in 1838, presented a socialist and feminist a feminist and socialist vision of the future. In 1840, in Promenades in London, she wrote about wealth and misery in England. Her final book, The Workers' Union, 1843, proposed the organisation of workers across France in defence of their own interests. She died in Bordeaux on the 14th of November, 1844, aged 41, while attempting to recruit workers to her union. Contexts. Socialist and feminist ideas emerged in Europe around the time uh, Tristan was born. In 1791, during the French Revolution, Olympe des Jeuses published the pamphlet Declaration of the Rights of Women and of the Citizen. In 1808, Charles Fourier published The Theory of the Four Movements, in which he wrote, quotes, Social progress and changes of historical periods take place in proportion to the advance of women towards liberty, and social decline occurs as a result of the diminution of the liberty of women. The extension of the privileges of women is the fundamental cause of all social progress. Women followers of Henry St. Simon constituted themselves into a separate section in the movement in 1829, running even cl- evening classes for artisans. Led by Claire Bessard and Eugenie Neboyet, they recruited young garment workers, notably Marie-Raine Gundorf, Desiree Verret and Jean Derion. The women's section in Paris had 200 regular members in groups developed in cities such as Lyon and Nantes. Verret and Gundorf started a newspaper for women, La Femme Libre, in August 1832, when a thousand copies of the first issue were printed. The paper survived until February 1834, appearing irregularly under, under different titles, 32 times in all. Tristan's Socialism Flora Tristan played a vital role in spreading socialist ideas in France through her writing and speaking. After a visit in London, to London in 1839, she promoted the Chartist movement as a model to French workers. Her London journal expressed her perspective clearly. Quotes, Resistance to oppression is not only man's natural right, but what is more, when the people are oppressed, insurrection becomes a sacred duty. But the great struggle, the one which is destined to transform the social order, is that which opposes on one side property owners and capitalists who control everything, wealth, political power, and for, the, for, and for whose benefits the country is governed, and on the other the workers of city and countryside who have nothing, neither land nor capital nor political power, who pay, however, two-thirds of the taxes, furnish recruits for the army and the navy, and whom the, ri- and whom the rich, as they see fit, keep on the verge of starvation to make them work for lower wages. Tristan made a significant contribution to working-class self-liberation with the publication of The Workers' Union, 1843. She expressed independent working-class politics, calling for workers' organisation, a socialist newspaper and agitation for immediate reforms. Quotes, 
Workers, now the day has come when one must act, and it is up to you and only you to act on the interest of your own cause. So leave your isolation, unite, unity gives strength. You have numbers going for you, and numbers are significant. I come to you to propose a general union among working men and women, regardless of trade, who reside in the same region, a union which would have as its goal the consolidation of the working class and the construction of several establishments, workers' union palaces, distributed evenly throughout France. The unification of the working class now remains to be accomplished. In turn, the workers... The vital part of the nation must create a huge union to assert their union. Then the working class will be strong. Then it will be able to make itself heard, to demand from the bourgeois gentlemen its rights to work and to organise. Tristan used the book as an organising tool, touring France speaking directly to working class meetings. A message captured in her letter to the workers of Toulon underlines a goal for workers to emancipate themselves. Quotes, you have not understood that in order to organise yourselves, workers, you must exclude all the bourgeois. The great proletarian party must first be built in order to destroy all masters and all slaves. End quotes. Women's liberation. Tristan's feminism was inextricably bound up with her socialism. She engaged with the great philosophers of her time, criticising Rousseau for treating women as passive while praising Mary Wollstonecraft's demands for women's liberty. Tristan made sharp criticism of various facets of women's oppression, comparing the position of women's slavery. She emphasised paid work for women, reflecting the importance she attributed to economic independence. Although some of her writing idealised artisan family life, she envisaged the ultimate disappearance of the family structure, advocating socialised child raising and education for young women and men. Probably Tristan's most significant contribution was to foreground women's leadership in all aspects of public life, starting with leading the workers' union. She regarded herself as the first strong woman, la femme forte, and advocated the women's guide on politi- in politics. When Robert Owen visited Paris in 1837, he was criticised at a meeting for not having a female leader beside him. Flora Tristan from the audience stood up, held out her hand and said, I am here. Owen apparently bowed to her. In 1839, Tristan snuck into the Houses of Parliament, disguised as a man with a Turkish embassy official, because women were banned from the premises and workers denied the vote. She was rumbled in the gallery and dejected. Tristan urged, urged the workers' union to reserve seats for women on its leading committees and insisted on women's leading involvement in all aspects of life. Critique In the workers' union, Tristan was explicit about the limits of her politics. She wrote, Quotes, I am not a revolutionary or an anarchist or a bloodthirsty person, in quotes, and argued that the union was a measure in favour of order, to be led by a well-known university doctor. Tristan's feminism did not engage with sexuality, gender and other aspects of women's oppression. A survey of the march of civilization in the non-European world in Peregrinations, 1837, 
expressed a Eurocentric perspective, including some racist tropes. However, in the same publication, she holds up the courage of the Ravanas, female members of the Peruvian army. Most significantly, Tristan's socialist feminism was saturated with religious sentiment. She regarded socialism as the perfect moral law, the logical outcome of the Christian exhortation, due unto others. She perceived her own role in messianic terms and criticised the secular atheist men of mathematics. Yet Tristan also married without a religious ceremony, criticised the Catholic Church and held extremely unconventional beliefs for her time. Tristan fought for, so fought for socialism before Marxism had even been developed. Marx and Engels defended her in The Holy Family, 1845, and she expressed elements of emergent, independent, working-class socialist politics. Her life, writings and activism have important lessons for, day for today's struggles. Page 27. Review. No Surrender is Our Motto and Our Duty by Jill Mountford. No Surrender is an important uh, social realist novel about the battle for votes for women. It was written in the moment at the height of the campaign by an active suffragette, Constant Maud, Maud was a champion of working-class women activists in the suffragette movement at a time when they were dismissed and disregarded by the autocratic leadership of the militant headline-grabbing Women's Social and Political Union, WSPU. Through their graphic novel, Sophie and Scarlett Ricard have taken No Surrender and breathed new life into it for a 21st century readership. Christabel Pankhurst had little regard for working-class women. She saw them as, quote, the weakest portion of the sex. Their lives are, were too hard, their education too meagre to equip them for the contest. We once picked women, the very strongest and the most intelligent, end quotes. Despite the views of its leadership, hundreds of working-class women got involved in the WSPU, and tens of thousands more in broader women's suffrage campaigns. There were three suffragette novels written at the height of the struggle. The first was The Convert by Elizabeth Robbins in 1907, followed by Suffragette Sally by Gertrude Colmore in 1911, and then No Surrender that same year. Interestingly, all three novels have working-class women as the main or central protagonists. The latter two novels were published at the beginning of the periods known as the Great Unrest, a time of labour revolt and mass strikes. Suffragette Sally and No Surrender were published a year after the campaign of the chainmakers of Cradley Heath. This was a struggle organised by Mary MacArthur, which culminated in an indefinite strike. Within 15 weeks, the women won a minimum wage. In the summer of 1911, 15,000 women in the Bermondsey area of South London, again organised by Mary MacArthur, took strike action in 23 different factories. Most returned to work, having won victories around pay and conditions. Love Stories In No Surrender, Constant Maud is meticulous in her account of real events, the skirmishes, the violence, the solidarity, the personal sacrifices and the mass movement. 
The cause of votes for women is one of two love stories running through this novel. It is this love story that is the all-consuming passion. The other is a personal story of love that is doomed because of political differences. Jenny Clegg, the main protagonist, is a mill worker from Lancashire. She is a poor, hard-working, plucky and above all else, a principled young woman who is convinced by her friend Mary O'Neill, an Anglo-Irish aristocrat, in part inspired by Constance Lighton, to join the women's suffrage movement. Page 28. Through this relationship, Jenny becomes a committed activist for the cause and as a result faces a major conflict with her boyfriend, labour movement activist Joe Hopton, who is very much against women's suffrage. Class in the suffrage movement. Maud, like Robbins and Comor, sets out to dispel the popular myth that the suffragette movement was for middle class and aristocratic ladies. It is worth examining the life of Constance Lighton, on whom the Mary O'Neill character is in part based in thinking about class and the suffrage movement. Leighton was an active suffragette writer and later campaigner for prison reform and birth control who showed a great deal of solidarity with working class women. She, when she was arrested for stone throwing, she was accommodated in the hospital wing of the prison due to her congenital heart condition, while two working class women who were stone-throwing alongside her, were accommodated in the third division and subjected to force feeding. Lytton was outraged by this and wanted to expose the brutal treatment of her working-class sisters. The next time she was arrested, she presented herself as Jane Wharton, a seamstress, and was treated savagely and humiliated. She was repeatedly force-fed. Suspicions about her real identity were raised, and she was released from prison. Lytton used this experience to great effect, exposing the lies of the government and prison authorities that force-feeding was a special medical treatment, when in fact it was torture designed to punish and intimidate women. Maud used Lytton's experiment in her story. Mary O'Neill is released early from prison and the threat of force feeding her is abandoned while Jenny Clegg and quotes her 17 companions having no cousins among those in high places had served out their full sentences to the bitter, very bitter end in spite of weak hearts and fainting fits, end quotes. Working class women are celebrated in Maud's novel. Unfortunately, working class men don't fare so well. They are generally typecast as cruel, selfish, ignorant brutes. No doubt many men were more than capable of being drunken, wife-beating bullies, but I think she labours it a bit and in inculcates a wisp of melodrama. The Punishment While the graphic novel might save us from some overdone prose, using words so sparingly inevitably loses out on the detail of polemical discussions, where this graphic novel offers something additional, even new, is in conjuring up the dreamscapes and nightmare situations in the chapter entitled The Punishment. Overall, Scarlett Rickard's illustrative style has a, a soft and characterful nature about it, which is apt for telling a very human story. The illustrations convey emotion, energy and atmosphere very well throughout the novel. 
they do a particularly good job around the force feeding of hunger-striking suffragettes where their reader is invited to fall into the horror. Scarlett Rickard's <coughs> illustrations of the suffering, humiliation and hallucinations endured by those facing the rape of force-feeding drag the reader in. You are left in no doubt that this vile abuse goes beyond the torture of the body and enters the deepest recesses of the mind. The artwork is reminiscent of Munch's The Scream and Hitchcock's Dreamscape in Vertigo. Maud and Colmore write striking, though second-hand accounts of force-feeding in their novels. Scarlett Rickard, through illustrations, has added something useful to the understanding of this deeply personal violation. Wonderful times. Maud also shows sensitivity and awareness to the growth of working-class women's struggle, no doubt through first-hand observation, and certainly reflecting the experience of women involved in the strikes of 1910 and 1911. Maud's description of Jenny Clegg's experience is remarkably reminiscent of that of Patience Round, the 79-year-old's first-time striker in the Chainmakers' Dispute in 1910. Patient Round said at the time, quotes, These are wonderful times. I never thought that I should live to assert the rights of women. It has been the week of my life, three meetings <coughs> and such beautiful talking. End quotes. Maud writes that Jenny Clegg had, quotes, Never in her life known such happiness. She felt herself growing unfolding in this new atmosphere, mentally, physically and spiritually. It was a wonderful sensation. End quotes. If you are interested in this period of women's and working class history, both the novel and the graphic novel are worth checking out. Page 29. Review. Abolish the Family by Ruth Cashman. I love my family. I assume, bolstered by stats and anecdotes, that they are nicer than average, or at least less violent. Maybe you love yours, or like them or hate them maybe all three. The family is the site of the majority of violence against women and children. The family is the privatised unit of care, driving alienation, isolation and endless domestic drudgery. The family can be a place of security, care, love and support. The vast majority of people say they love their parents, children and siblings. The family, it seems, is the best and the worst of us. Verso has two books published 40 years apart which examine family abolition. Sophie Lewis in Abolish the Family um, and Michelle Barrett in Antisocial Family both argue that abolition rather than reform is politically necessary. The nuclear family is a societal ideal, a wildly successful political and ideological project rather than an actual universal social unit. Most people don't live in mother-father-children units where the father is the primary breadwinner and mother is the primary caregiver. The traditional heteronormative family was never universal in working-class life and is becoming less so. At the same time, by many measures, families have got nicer. Recognition of domestic violence in political, medical and social spheres has reduced its prevalence and made it easier to escape. Women's and LGBTQ plus movements have won gains socially. 
more young people feel comfortable telling their parents they want contraception, that they're gay or that they never intend to get married. But even if the family as a patriarchal institution weakens, familialism as ideology is as strong as ever. Politicians make nonsense speeches about the centrality of family. Labour leader Keir Starmer outlined his number one priority, quotes, we will always put hard-working families and their priorities first, end quotes. Many rights depend on family, including citizenship. If you're in the UK as a dependent on your partner's visa, your visa status could change when you separate or divorce. There are coercive deterrents to leave families and uh, immense ideological pressure to build them. The eternal family. It is eerie how relevant antisocial family is now, despite being published in 1982. Barrett describes in the Thatcher and Regan era an all-encompassing political acceptance of the family on left and right. Ways of reaction and moralism and attacks on abortion often resulted in the left trying to make the cause of the family its own. Measures against poverty and joblessness were wrapped in familial rhetoric. Better healthcare is better healthcare for families. Working families were told to serve better, leaving the implication that single people and those out of work don't. Socialists neg neglecting gender issues on the basis of working class conservatism. It all sounds so familiar. Family abolition has a long history on the left. Marx, Engels and Trotsky focused on ending women's financial dependence and socialising domestic labour, though lefts the heteronormative family units intact. Kollontai, who went much further in challenging the family as a synonymous with love, did not develop the critique of the family as a school of gender and sexuality. Barrett explains that the strength of the family ideology lies in its presentation as a fact of nature rather than culture. The family is presented as a biological unit rather than as a social arrangement, and we forget it is an idea at all. Like gender and race, the family is presented as internal. Not just the family itself, but the social inequality and divisions it holds are also seen as natural. The family is a class institution. In fact, child-rearing is the most important process of class reproduction in society. The sexual division of labour assumed in working-class families is based on the unpaid work of women. This is then reproduced in the bourgeois family with low-paid domestic workers replacing mothers as those who cook, clean and serve. This is also seen in society at large. Women are more likely to do jobs that resemble domestic labour or are cast as such, cleaning, service, care, tending to the sick, early education, service. The skills required for such work are devalued in the labour market because they recall work women should be doing naturally in the family. Barrett implies that men who benefit from women's unpaid labour in the home exist as a class of exploiters and women the class of the exploited. The unpaid labour of women in the family is not appropriated by men, though of course they benefit from it, but by capital, which in this way saves on the cost of social reproduction which would otherwise have to be carried out by laid, waged labour, waged work. 
and monopoly on care. The brilliance of the book is not just in explaining why and how the family is an antisocial institution reproducing inequality and exploitation, but explaining why we like it so much in spite of this. Family is not an ideology we passively consume. We are active and at times happy participants. Real needs are met by the family under capitalism. It can be a perfectly rational choice to live in one. It can provide emotional security, economic advantages in childcare, and help you avoid the shame and guilt of living outside the societal ideal. The family's impressive offer is derived from denying us such comforts elsewhere. Quotes, the world around the family is not a pre-existing harsh climate against which the family offers protection and warmth. It is as if the family has drawn comfort and security into itself and left the outside world bereft. Page 30. As a bastion against a bleak society, it has made the society bleak. It is indeed a major agency for caring, but in monopolizing care, it has made it harder to undertake other forms of care. It is indeed a unit of sharing, but in demanding sharing within it has made other relations tend to become more mercenary. It is indeed a place of intimacy, but in privileging the intimacy of close kin, it has made the outside world cold and friendless, and made it harder to sustain relations of security and trust except with kin. Caring, sharing and loving would be more widespread if the family did not claim them for its own. End quotes. Black Queer Mothers Sophie Lewis's Abolish the Family reproduces many of the antisocial family's critiques of the family under capitalism. She seeks to rescue and re reassert the demand for abolition and has faced a grim backlash from socially conservative leftists, sadly a growing milieu. Her chapter on the history of abolition is engaging, but the book is let down by its narrow focus. She gives huge attention to extreme niche critiques. She seems preoccupied with preemptively defending herself against the accusation of being too white and devotes an entire chapter to reviewing and listing black feminist authors in a way that at times feels defensive and unnecessary. She begins from a starting point that black mothering is inherently queer in the sense that it has a different starting point to other family formations. Yet black and migrant families often offer protection against the worst of life under capitalism. Poverty, the police, criminal justice system. This is true however, of many other working class families. To present this as black family, queer, is to sacrifice a very important general point, substituting it for an argument which only makes sense to the Twitter left and a corner of academia. Race does intersect with class in defend the family arguments. Black families have a relationship with the state marked by racism and brutality, and this is very present in the arenas of state social reproduction around childcare, foster care, social services and schooling. Without improving these, we will not break away from the ideology of family. Family abolition can't be about taking these protections away, but about offering something better. The family's prima weak weakness, primary weakness, is with much of capitalist ideology, is the gap between what it promises and what it offers. 
Lewis and Barrett both say we need to move away from familial language, terms like chosen family or brothers, sisters and siblings, to describe friendships and activists or political relationships. In building a movement, I'm minded to say we should not be sniffy about how people use language. Change usually comes at least in part through incremental pushing at constraints. Our job. The job of socialists is to bridge between present demands and the socialist program of the revolution. In social reproduction, as in the productive sphere, we need transitional demands, namely expansion of available forms of care and the choice of for household and communal living, shortening the working week for all, adequate benefits and wages, including child benefit, which covers the cost of bringing up children, free childcare, laundries and canteens, solidarity and support for those pushing against restrictive gender norms. We do not know what living arrangements will be normal or preferred in a society where the labour of social reproduction is planned rationally and shared fairly, where private property is abolished, borders can be crossed at will, and where we are not limited by oppressive gender roles. Our task is getting there. Page 31. <coughs> Tackling Abuse in Our Unions by Katie Dollar. An inquiry has found a culture of sexism, harassment and bullying in the Transport Salaried Staffs Association, TSSA, Helena Kennedy KC reported, quotes, It gave me no pleasure to uncover a series of appalling incidents alongside leadership and management failings in the TSSA. These in incidents included inappropriate and sexual touching, sexual assault, coercive and manipulative behaviour, violent and disrespectful language, humiliation and denigration of members of staff, reps and members of the executive committee, end quotes. She recommends that none of the current senior staff she calls the internal leadership should remain in the organisation. This came after the 2020 report by Karen Monaghan QC into sexual harassment within the GMB concluded that the union was institutionally sexist with bullying, misogyny, cronyism and sexual harassment endemic. Though details of the assaults were different in the different unions, Findings on sexism, undemocratic practices and the covering up of allegations against senior officials were marked similar. A damning inquiry by Bruce Carr KC into the Royal College of Nursing has exposed bullying, misogyny and a sexual culture where women are at risk of alcohol and power related exploitation. The report says RCN senior leadership had been riddled with division, dysfunction and distrust, and condemns the male-dominated governing body known as Council as not fit for purpose. Responding to the report on TSSA, TUC General Secretary Paul Nowak said, quote, sexual harassment and bullying have no place in the trade union movements or any workplace. The TUC believes the women who came forward to share their experiences. I'm pleased the TSSA has committed to act on Helena Kennedy's recommendations and have asked the TSSA to meet with me and the TUC president to discuss next steps. This report must lead to genuine culture change. The union movement must be a place where women feel safe and supported. End quotes. 
The TUC has made, at the time of writing, no comments on allegations that complaints about Cortes had been repeatedly ignored by then-TUC General Secretary Francis O'Grady. Changes It is very unlikely that these unions, subject to independent inquiries, are alone in their failings. The entire labour movement must face up to reality. Activists should fight for democratic reforms and changes in culture. Recurring themes in the reports include the failure or inability of lay executives to oversee staff at the top of the union, cultures of cronyism offering a route uh, to higher paid jobs through loyalty, alcohol and banter in social scenes which staff had to be part of to hold influence, sexist tropes, beliefs and toxic behaviours being common and tolerated, low levels of rank-and-file involvement and power. Our unions cannot be allowed to be controlled by gangs of high-paid staff operating a system of patronage and cover-up. The current strike wave has brought in many new activists into our unions. PCS and NEU picket lines were visibly full of young women. In addition, many long-standing activists have been reinvigorated by the struggle, throwing off demoralisation from years of defeat and inactivity. These activists can be the base of a new movement for the democratic reforging of our unions. Those groups which face specific discrimination, women, blackened migrant workers, LGBTQ plus workers, disabled workers, need real self-organisation within unions from branch to national level. These structures must be more than advisory to have adequate resources and power to ensure their issues are taken up. Bigotry, prejudice and oppression divide workers and make us weaker. The measures we need to make our unions safer for work women and more able to defeat our bosses are the same.